This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hey, everybody. Hope you're enjoying the beautiful weather and that you're having fun in your garden. April 22nd, of course, is Earth Day. Do you have anything special planned to help the Earth on that day? If not, you can help remove trash and debris from trailheads in Maine or pull up buckthorn, a non-native invasive, in New Hampshire. Also happening in New Hampshire on Saturday the 23rd, a shoreline cleanup with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And then on Sunday the 24th, you can join crews for a beach cleanup in Rye, New Hampshire with the Blue Ocean Society. To find out more about these Earth Day events, go to naturegroupie.org. And now let's talk about today's show. Today we'll be talking about the new buzz phrase, soft landing, and what it means. Then we'll talk about how to tell when a bird needs rescuing. We'll also discuss safe techniques for removing a bird trapped inside a building. And finally, we will talk with Vicki Hurd, author of the best-selling book, Rebugging the Planet. Her book is chock full of wonderful ideas about how to support and sustain the insects in our yards and gardens, all of which has a positive impact on birds and the planet. And now let's take a moment to talk about the new buzzword in the native gardening world. For the last several years, the buzzword has been biomass, meaning the more native trees and plants you have in your yard, the more insects you help produce. By doing this, you provide lots of biomass in the form of caterpillars, a bird's food of choice. The new buzzword, or buzz phrase, is soft landing. What does that mean? Soft landing means several things. For one, it means creating a soft mass of native vegetation around the base of a tree, all the way out to the drip line. By doing this, when insects hatch, they can crawl down the tree and find the food and protection they need to develop into moths, butterflies, and other insects. How many of us have seen a caterpillar on a road or asphalt driveway trying to find native greenery where it can complete its life cycle? And how many of us have seen inchworms lowering themselves from tree branches on a single gossamer strand, only to land on concrete? The phrase soft landing was coined by award-winning entomologist Heather Holm. The idea behind a soft landing is to plant diverse native plantings under keystone trees. Keystone trees are the trees native to a region that provide food and shelter to a wide array of insects. Once insect eggs hatch into larvae, they eat the leaves of the host tree and then travel downward to the ground so they can pupate into adult butterflies or moths. A soft landing is absolutely vital, especially to the species providing for the majority of insect biomass, like willows, oaks, cherries, and pines. For example, native oaks provide food and shelter for an astonishing 940 species of caterpillar, the number one food choice for birds. 
By placing native plants underneath these trees, you are creating critical habitat and shelter for insects so they can complete their life cycles. A soft landing also means not cleaning up the areas at the bases of trees. To keep pupating insects safe, don't rake, mow, or leaf blow around the bases of your trees. By doing so, you will also be offering protected habitat for bumblebees, beetles, lacewings, and fireflies. If possible, make sure the entire drip line beneath the tree is covered in not just native plants, but also dried leaves, broken twigs, and branches. When larvae pupate, they often burrow into leaf litter on the ground. In addition, creating a duff layer allows fungus like mushrooms and bacteria to do their job breaking down organic material that can be reused by other organisms. In turn, this breakdown of organic material benefits the trees and creates better water retention. What to plant under the trees? You have many choices, including mayapple, phlox, wild ginger, or grasses and sedges. It all depends on the sun and shade requirements you have. When planting natives below trees, be careful not to disturb or injure any tree roots. This is slow, steady, and careful work, but one of the most beneficial things you can do for your yard, the ecosystem, and especially the birds. And now let's talk about what to do when you find a bird that needs help. First and foremost, you must determine if the bird actually needs help. Many well-meaning homeowners can mistakenly try to help birds that don't need helping. One example is when baby birds fledge from the nest. It's important to keep in mind that many young birds leave the nest to explore their surroundings long before they can fly. What happens is they hang out near the nest or on an adjacent branch, or they drop to the ground and explore the grass and trees in the area below the nest. Their parents keep vigil, closely watching the youngster and bringing the bird food. A fledgling can remain on the ground for up to a week while their wings grow to catch up with the rest of their body. Now the question is, should you intervene? No, unless you see certain problems. One problem would be a house cat allowed outdoors. This is a serious danger to fledgling birds. Do the right thing and keep the cat indoors for at least a week while the youngster matures into a flying bird. Another problem would be when you find a fledgling bird that appears injured. Is the bird limping? Is the bird bleeding? Are you seeing dirt on the bird? If so, call your local wildlife rehabilitator right away. Put the bird in a cardboard box with a soft towel on the bottom and keep the bird quiet while you call for help. You can also call animalhelpnow.org for help. Now, what if you discover a bird is trapped inside your garage, porch, carriage house, attic, basement, barn, or garden shed? It is not a good idea to just assume the bird will always find its way back out. Birds are often confused by glass windows and their reflection and will continuously throw themselves against the glass in an effort to escape until a serious injury occurs. There are several techniques you can try. One is to carefully flush the bird out by opening doors and windows on one side of the building and then slowly walking to the opposite side and standing there quietly. This will prompt the bird to fly to the side of the room with the open door and windows to avoid you, and the bird may fly outside. The second technique is to use two butterfly nets. These nets are lightweight with soft edges and can be found in any dollar store. If you are able, use the two nets brought together to catch the bird and carry the bird outside. Expect the bird to sit for a few minutes while it calms down and regains its bearings. 
If you notice the bird is injured in any way, place the bird in a cardboard box and call your local wildlife rehabilitator or animal help now right away. And please don't forget to remedy the original problem. If there is a way for birds to get into a garage or shed, be sure to change that so other birds cannot get in. And make sure there is no nest inside the building before locking it up. If you cannot catch the bird, contact your local wildlife rehabilitator. Either they may come out to your location to help, or they may give you tips and instructions on the best way to catch a bird. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce highly accomplished and award-winning researcher and author Vicki Hurd. Vicki has written a new book called Rebugging the Planet, The Remarkable Things That Insects and Other Invertebrates Do and Why We Need to Love Them More. These marvelous little mini-beasts, as she calls them, are what keep the planet ecologically sound. She is asking all of us to go a little wild when planting our gardens by allowing insects to reside peacefully in our yards. She is also asking us to rebug our attitudes, to put down the spray can of poison, and to recapture our childlike amazement observing these fascinating creatures that many people call pests. Vicki, thank you so much for joining us today. Your book is wonderful. So I have many, many questions for you, but <laughs> just to start us off, please tell our listeners what is happening to the world's insect populations right now. It's really one of the things that drove me to write the book because there's some really scary data out there of massive trends downwards in terms of invertebrates and particularly insects. The bees are in trouble, flies, flying insects, trap data showing that they're in real decline in Europe. But there's also a lot of gaps in the data, worrying gaps that we don't know about what's happening in many parts of the world for many species. So um, we need to know what's going on. But what we know already is really quite scary. So we've got to do a lot of things to address it because they're so important for our survival and of themselves, they're critical. Why are insects so important to Earth's ecosystems? Yes, well, insects and all the other invertebrates, like the worms and the springtails and the spiders, I talk about them all. Without the soil invertebrates, keeping the soil aerated, allowing water to go through, transporting the microbes, the, the fungal spores and things through the soil, the invertebrates provide such a critical function in the soil that we wouldn't have our crops without the invertebrates. And there would be a massive massive loss of the global population of humans but they also do many other things like they um, provide a lot of clean water they do a lot of filtering services in our freshwater systems they are critical in terms of the cycling of nutrients in water systems the zooplankton and the other invertebrates in the seas are critically important for making sure that they, there's a cycling of the phytoplankton which are very important in terms of how the seas manage climate change and all the pollutants and all these kind of things they're also you know very critical for our well-being you know well, where would we be without the birds and we wouldn't have the birds if we didn't have the invertebrates and insects to feed them to provide the food sources for them and so on and so forth and then without the invertebrates we'd be knee-deep in waste we'd be knee-deep in dead bodies without the beetles that do an incredible job breaking them down so that they could be further broken down by the fungi. So, you know, just every part of our life is intricately 
related to the invertebrates and their role in in the natural systems that provide us with our food, with our clothes, with our water, with the fresh air that we breathe, and with the natural systems that we we love that are part of being alive. You know, seeing the wildlife, seeing the birds, seeing landscapes, all critically based on a, a really important role that the invertebrates provide. So I talk about this in all the many ways, but I also think there's an awful lot we can learn from the invertebrates that we, you know, we are learning, you know, things about building materials from the uh, termites and uh, strong, strong materials from the beetles. You know, there's loads of ways we're learning from them, but we could also learn to live more lightly on this planet by mimicking some of the things the invertebrates do. So, you know, we, we get lots, we could learn lots, we enjoy lots from the invertebrates and our, our world would be pretty much impossible to live in if they weren't there. Okay, so tell me, uh, people do tend to have a lot of misconceptions about bugs. Why do you think that is? They do. I think the fear is put in people from a very early age. The fear that the bugs will sting them or they're dirty, they'll have diseases or they'll fly into their ears. And this comes from, you know, the, the carers, the parents, or instilling it into children from a very early age. And it, it tends to not go away. And that's what I try and talk about in the book. I, I've got a whole chapter quite near the beginning called Rebugging Our Attitudes. And that's about thinking differently and reacting differently when we see a bug because the majority of bugs are completely harmless. So we want to be checking when we're around young people in particular, checking what we say, but around anybody and talking differently about the invertebrates that you see, the, the bees um, or the wasps. People are frightened of wasps. Majority of wasps do not want to do you harm. So just trying to change people's attitudes and particularly around the young. But we can all be part of that rebugging your attitudes by sharing pictures, by sharing stories. And that's what I was talking about in the book, about being part of the movement to promote bugs and make people like them more. Right. Now, how much of a role do you think advertising played in that? I remember, I mean, I'm dating myself, but as a young girl, I remember in the 60s and 70s, a television commercials showing people spraying, you know, just... Yeah, Tons absolutely. of uh, insecticide. Yeah. I mean, I, I must have seen thousands of commercials like that. Do you think that played a role in people's attitudes? I think it did. I definitely think it did. And, you know, keeping it your lawn pristine and your house completely free of any sort of life other than your own was very much the thing. But I think it's changing. That was the other reason I, I started writing the book, because I think there is a, a new generation of people who actually have moved off that and the advertising is reduced what it's exciting at the moment i've just heard that our royal horticultural society which is one of the leading society for gardeners in in england has decided not to use the word pest when it's talking about a lot of the um, animals that in, you know a week ago it would have done like slugs and snails the idea that we are changing our attitude is really coming from a lot of surprising places, which is really exciting to see. So not using the word weed, not using the word pests automatically. And therefore, people won't automatically reach for the chemicals or the cutters or the lawnmowers to get rid of them. You know, it, there's a lot of interesting things and narratives being used now about why letting the bugs in and around us is a good thing. And I, I think it's really encouraging and exciting. And I think a lot of people now recognize that don't reach for the chemical. Reach for the chemicals at very last resort, which is good. Right. Now, I know in your book you said that decades ago, E.O. Wilson said bugs are the little things that run the world. Do you think most people understand that? And if not, why? 
I think they are understanding it more. I think, you know, things like in America, your Monarch Watch, and in the UK, we've had B-Watch. There's a, there's a lot more of an understanding of the role and importance of the invertebrates. The, the organizations that run these citizen science programs in schools and for adults have been really getting a lot of impact and getting a lot of people seeing a different side of the invertebrates in the insects. Everybody knows about bees, you know, they pollinate and they give us honey. But I think it's gone beyond that. I think a lot of people understand why they do make the world run. We need a lot more of it, but I think the TV programs about wildlife have started to talk more about invertebrates as well in the insects and why they matter in our water, in our soil, as well as in the air. There's a change afoot, but this is against the profits of those that are trying to peddle pest control systems. So we've still got masses of work to do to reduce the level of pesticides and chemicals that can hurt both the invertebrates and the larger animals, the birds and, and the mammals that um, eat them or, you know, or around those chemicals. So we've got a long way to go, but I think there is an attitudinal change, which is, which is good. And I think TV and NGOs, non-governmental organizations that have promoted people getting involved with nature have, have made a big difference. Right. Now, I remember as a child being absolutely fascinated by insects. I didn't really have much fear. And I know my, my nephew you know, loves, loves to be in the backyard looking at butterflies and beetles and you know, everything. What happens when we become adults? I mean, why does that go away? Yeah, the only thing I can, I can really think is that it's the adults telling the children and it eventually filters through or children start to see themselves as the dominance you know there's this exceptionalism about humans you know we are destined to have dominion over the natural world and as we get older that gets reinforced through teaching in school history biology even and you know where we start to learn about biology and chemicals and how we've done amazing things to create a huge amount more food on this planet but it had a huge knock-on effect on the environment it doesn't always get reported people see you know that we have dominion and we will continue so so i think as children get older and they get you know get those kind of messages in school and they start to understand that they you know we're the dominant animals on this planet and uh, therefore we can control the invertebrates and we should control them we should keep our houses totally free of of spiders and without thinking that might actually mean that we get more flies things like that and gardens you know having the pristine lawn all those messages also come from advertising as as you were saying advertising sort of suggests that we should have very neatness where in fact what nature needs is mess more mess and it's a beautiful mess that it needs so what finally led you to write the book what was the motivation I got scared by the data, frankly. It was really frightening. I, I've, I've got an entomological background. I actually did a, a degree in, in invertebrates and sort of, so I, I sort of was aware of what was happening vaguely. But I, as my job is about food and farming, I do campaigning on food and farming policy. And I was beginning to see the data coming through three or four years ago that was really startling. And I was sitting on a train and I said, well, I can write 50 things, 50 tips that people can do and I'll make it into a poster and I'll put it on LinkedIn and so on and so forth. And then it got, you know, it got longer and I wanted to explain a bit more. And I happened to meet a publisher and and they were interested in producing something, a, a pamphlet. But when you actually look at it and look at the data, but also look at what can be done, what's, what's possible and what resources are there to actually change people's attitudes and behaviors, it started to turn into a, a bigger book. And there was also a really, really great story to tell about what the invertebrates do for us, you know, the, the worms and 
and the bees and the bugs. So it became a book. And yeah, it was inspiring to do because it got me sitting down and really investigating the science behind some of the benefits that we get from invertebrates and also what we can learn from them, which, you know, which was really interesting to read about. And I've put some of it in the book, but obviously I could have written a hundred books and not covered it because they are, you know, in terms of a palette, what you could draw on if you're doing any book about any animal, there's nothing more broad or diverse as invertebrates. They are incredibly diverse and numerous and beautiful. So, you know, all that inspired me to write it, really. And happily, a publisher was Chelsea Green was interested in producing something like that. So, And it has got tips all the way through. So it's not just a, a, a sort of heavy reading thing. There's boxes and tips and great examples of good bugs. Right. So tell me about equal status for bugs. Well, what you're talking about here is sort of giving them rights, I think. Yes. There was a wonderful story um, in Costa Rica, a suburb of the main capital of Costa Rica started to be interested in really greening the very urban concreted spaces that its inhabitants were living in because Costa Rica is an amazingly rich diverse area for biodiversity in in outside of the towns but in the towns it's very urbanized and concrete so they wanted to do something for their population and for the invertebrates and for the wildlife and they started to do something. The mayor was really inspired to do lots of things, make the rivers cleaner, rewild the habitats, the green spaces, the parks, make the parks connected with green corridors so animals can fly through, invertebrates can really survive, lots of wildflower plantings, shrubs, etc. So all this, and, and they also decided to give the bees citizenship. So they had a status, they had a right to be there, which is really lovely. And I haven't seen that anywhere else, but I think, you know, a lot of places are interested in that kind of approach, almost as a sort of PR job. But I think it's an important thing to think about, whether nature does have rights. I think it should have rights. We we shouldn't be dominion, and we have done so much damage. We need to do a lot to reverse that damage. So by getting citizens excited about what happens around them in the well most of us live in urban areas now what happens in the urban environment for the invertebrates and how you can create green corridors for them so they can travel through and find refuges but also places that you will love to go to you know just sitting in a near a grass verge in a road you know in in a urbanized area can be fantastic if you see some more invertebrates so giving giving some status legal status the invertebrates i think makes a lot of sense i would love to see more urban areas do that. Right. Now, your book has been referred to as a call to arms. What are some things people could be doing to help insects? Yes, it it definitely is. Um, I'm a campaigner by nature. But what I wanted to stress with the book is that there are loads of different things you can do. You know, it, it can be what you do in your house or your garden. There's so many ways in which you can really encourage more invertebrates and provide a refuge and a, a nesting place and a eating place for, for the invertebrates in ways that will really help you. You can even mow less and, you know, save time and provide more flowering plants for the invertebrates and, and let, let the weeds grow and have woody piles, you know, log piles, which will attract beetles, which will then be fantastic pest control if you want to get rid of a number of your slugs. Things like that you can do in your garden. There's loads of resources online, and I give lots of tips in the book and about what to plant that will attract invertebrates and having ponds and different types of plants, you know, some trees, some shrubs, some flowering plants. So all that you can do in your home, but you can also rebug your 
purchasing patterns, what you buy, particularly what you buy in terms of food, because well, in the UK, 70% of the land is farmed. So it makes a huge difference to the invertebrates because land is where, you know, what makes the impact on invertebrates. So eating more organic food, food that's been produced by farmers and growers that you know haven't used loads of chemicals. Buying more direct from farmers can really help or fresh because then you're reducing the amount of processing and processing of food and heavily junk food, high sugary fat, oily, salty food, that tends to come from monocultures, which are really bad for the insects because monocultures, you know, the insects can't survive when there's just, well, some insects can, but majority of can't. You haven't got habitats. You've got a lot of chemicals used. You've got a single crop. It's, you know, it's not a good thing. So what you buy, but also what you wear and the furniture you buy, all these things I go into thinking about what, what you wear and the fact that your probably most sustainable clothing is what you're wearing right now. Don't keep buying clothes. Don't do the fast fashion thing. Avoid that and, and you know, share clothes, sell them on to somebody else when you've finished with them. All those kind of things. So everything you buy and you're purchasing. But then the other thing I talk about is rebugging your politics. And I'm not talking about right, left or anything like that, but, you know, with a small p, start getting involved. Start getting involved in how your local park or your local grass verges are managed. Start to talk to your local council or borough or officials about reducing or eliminating chemical use and using different ways to manage the weeds or not calling them weeds, you know, calling them flowering plants and having wild spaces in your parks and places where people can learn about the invertebrates. So, Doing things with the parks locally and verges and roundabouts, all those kind of, I don't know if you have roundabouts in North America, but any green spaces can be really important stopping points for the invertebrates and can be part of, you know, a food system. Even if they're not growing food, you know, you're, you're allowing invertebrates to stop, rest, feed before they go on somewhere else. So it's really important part of the system. And then national politics. We have a huge, huge chemical lobby and a, a lobby of genomics, the lobby of big ag, big inputs, big fertilizers, single genes, genetic modified foods, all sorts of things. And we need a movement to counter the pressure that huge multi-million pound lobby has on decision making in governments across the globe. They have a huge lobbying impact and they need, in our policymakers, MPs, representatives need to hear from us that we want things different. We want the invertebrates to be protected and we want, you know, them to listen to us and to the experts and the scientists and the non-profits who are, have got the evidence there to say we've, you know, they're in trouble, but we can do something about it rather than the lobbyists who will say, Oh, we can sort this all out. We can have a bit of greening. So there's a lot of we can, you know, a lot of ways we can get involved. I've got in the book at the end lots of different organizations and um, ways you can do some lobbying. And so it's not scary. A lot of people are, uh, you know, feel that getting involved in Politics is difficult, scary, useless, and it's not. It all matters. So I talk about all those things. I do start with the attitude thing, you know, rebugging your attitude, because I think if everybody becomes an advocate for the bugs, that will make a difference. But there are loads of other things you can do just in your everyday purchasing or your you know, moving around your house, leaving the cobwebs, you know, things like that. But, you know, there's a lot of things from small to large, which I hope people will get involved with in the book. Right. Now, we are already seeing extinctions of insects and insects close to extinction all over the globe, aren't we? We are. We are seeing, you know, in 
the red list species of invertebrates we've lost a lot already i'm trying to remember the names of the ones in america but you know it's really scary how many are, uh, have been lost but we're also seeing about 40% of insects at risk of extinction that's the latest data so you know we've lost many we're going to lose many more and it's often the the ones that are bit more specialist you know you can imagine a cockroach or some of the flies they can feed on anything live anywhere they'll probably be fine but it's the ones that are a bit more specialist that are a bit more need a particular habitat a bit particular food source or you know live in water in a particular type of water system they are at risk because when that system is changed in some way the water is warmer or it's got a chemical in it or those flowers are no longer available as a food source or a nesting sort of laying egg source then they will disappear and the more that happens the more fragmented those habitats happen the more pollution happens then they more of them will disappear and and that's just accelerating unfortunately so we are seeing you know that's why the 40% of insects at risk of extinction is is really scary and those insects are really important for other higher animals like the birds and the small mammals as food sources and other critical parts of the ecosystem so it's a awful thing to think of us being responsible for extinction of these species some of which are beautiful some beautiful butterflies that we're losing really sad one of the reasons I wrote the book and I support all these organizations uh, across the globe that are working hard to reverse that decline is because we don't want to make it any worse We've got to do a U-turn and start to see our food, our clothes, our lives differently so that they can support the insects. I'd like to thank Vicki Hurd for joining us today. You can find her book, Rebugging the Planet, by going to the Chelsea Green Publishing website at chelseagreen.com. And you can find out more about Vicki and her work in England by going to her blog at rebuggingtheplanet.org. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird-watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.